0: It's 5 p.m. on Thursday, April 14th, and therefore, you are at the bar. I'm Nina
1: Stepman with the Independent Women's Forum. And I'm Jennifer Broussaris from Independent Women's Law Center. Welcome to our 25th virtual happy hour conversation about issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Today, I am drinking a Cape Codder, a very nice New England drink, cranberry juice and a little vodka, Um, to kick off a long holiday weekend. So um, today we are going to be talking about Title IX, um, the statute that most people think of either as a catalog for women's athletic wear um, or a sports law. Um, And we are going to be talking about how bureaucrats at the Department of Education have twisted this law, which is actually just a simple anti-discrimination law, um, into a vehicle for social policymaking on everything from sports and school dress codes to sexual assault and harassment. Um, And we will discuss how in the coming months, the Biden administration plans to twist the law even further. Um, Beyond all recognition, some might say, uh, and some people might argue that they're planning to gut it completely. So. should be an interesting discussion.
0: Absolutely. And to join in that
1: interesting discussion and
0: help us break it all down, we're going to have two guests today. Um, first, we're going to have Professor Shep Melnick, a politics professor from Boston College, um, and he's going to join us in just a moment. Later in the show, we'll be speaking with Candace Jackson, who's a former deputy general counsel at the Department of Education um, under the Trump administration. But first, Jennifer, let's like just break this down because there's this one tiny little statute like basically one sentence, right? Um, and it has spawned so many buckets of policy and regulation and like things that impact our lives. So um, I'm gonna post the the graphic, graphic of the actual statute, which bear in mind for all of our discussion today, this little tiny thing is what has generated all of these different um, sort of policy elements.
1: Yeah, so there it is. I'll just read it out loud, um, especially for those who are listening via podcast and can't see it. Um, The law says no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So in other words, um, if you are a school that gets federal money and virtually all of them do, not just K through 12, but private colleges and universities as well, um, and public colleges and universities. um, So if you are one of those schools, um, you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. And not only can't you discriminate in the particular area where you receive the federal funds, you can't discriminate at all. So let's say only um, your biology department for some reason takes some federal funding for a research grant, but no other aspect of the university takes federal funding. Um, It's kind of a false hypothetical, but let's let's just say that's the case. Still, that university would be prohibited from discriminating on the basis of sex, in any aspect of its programming, whether that's uh, athletics, admissions, um, housing, scholarships, whatever. Um, so that's the law. It was passed in 1972, and it prohibits sex discrimination in education. That's basically it.
0: <laughs> and and out of that... Um... Single sentence and, and very basic description that Jennifer just gave. We have um, elements that ha- go into, for example, due process rights um, when when people are accused of sexual misconduct in college campuses. We have the definition of sex itself, um, all kinds of of uh, you know attempts to put gender identity under uh, that definition. And then we also have, there's free speech elements as well, because this also deals with harassment um, at any institution that takes Title IX funds, which as, as Jennifer said, is K-12 and universities, but it also deals with harassment and the definition of harassment, um, which has in recent years gotten really, really vague and started to sweep in potentially protected First Amendment speech. Um, and then of course, there's, there's the thing that everybody knows, which is the sports element of it. So this is this one tiny sentence has just done so much work um, in terms of building the the sort of regulatory civil rights era that we live under. Um, But with that brief introduction, I think it's time to bring up our first guest. Arshep Melnick is the Thomas P. O'Neill, Jr. Professor of American Politics, as I said, at Boston College. He's also the co-chair of the Harvard Program on Constitutional Government and the author of a book called The Transformation of Title IX, Regulating Gender Equality in Education, which was published by Brookings in 2018. Thanks so much for joining us at the bar.
2: Oh, well, It's great to be here. Thanks for asking me.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Um... Yeah, Professor Melnick's book, I don't know if everyone could see this, The Transformation of Title IX, is actually a really great primer for anyone who's sort of unfamiliar with the details of Title IX, and also the administrative state, um, how federal agencies in general uh, regulate based on laws passed by Congress. Um, And I want to ask you a little bit about the book. You have a chapter in there called The Complexities of a Simple Statute, Mm -hmm. in which you talk about sort of how there are all the, there's, you know, as Inez and I just just talked about, it's one simple sentence basically, the, the main part of the law, but then there are all these exceptions to the statute. And you talk about the ways that Title IX is different from Title VI, which prohibits race discrimination in schools and other recipients of federal funds, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about those complexities um, and why Title IX has all these exceptions that Title VI does not.
2: Sure. So let me start with saying something about the way in which Title uh, IX came into being, because directly related to your question. Um, when Title VI of the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, it said, uh, analogous to the part of Title IX you read, that you can't discriminate on the basis of race or national origin. Uh, If you do, you will lose your federal funding. Um, And federal agencies were given the authority to enforce this through termination of funding and by issuing rules and regulations. So they had enforcement power and they had um, regulation, writing power. Now, um, in one part of the Civil Rights Act, Title VII, unemployment discrimination, the word sex was added. Um, it's kind of interesting, complicated history. But in Title VI, it wasn't. Um, so in the early 1970s, um, uh, quite a powerful congresswoman, Edith Green from uh, from Oregon, wanted to add uh, the word sex to Title Six, So it would affect educational institutions. Um, the civil rights organizations opposed that because they didn't want to open up Title VI to amendment at a time when busing was such a hot issue. So she said, well, we'll just put it added to an education amendment. whole omnibus bills are mainly about funding. Um, so part of the result of that was that um, it generated very, very little debate. The other part, this really goes more directly to your question, is that um as much as everyone wanted to say the sex discrimination is like race discrimination, they had they made various distinctions, uh, various concessions um, because people realized it wasn't exactly the same. So concession number one was um, that private undergraduate colleges were exempt. So Wellesley, can okay. still be all women. Uh, Holyoke can still be all women, and it's possible to have all males' colleges if they're private and if they're undergraduate. Um, okay. and then they made the exception said that, um, for housing, you can have segregated facilities for housing. Um, we certainly would not have done that for race. Um, and there were and there was exemption for religious institutions, for military institutions. Um, so lots of uh exemptions from the beginning and then later congress added some some minor things like you can have uh uh all all female choirs and you can have mother-daughter dinners if you have father-son dinners you know not high policy making
1: but all of those exceptions or complexities as you call them in the book are all really reasonable and just make common sense based yeah. on the fact that men and women are different. We are equal, but we are not the same, yeah. as he does and I say all the time. Um, not not so with race. Uh, yeah. Race yeah. is supposed to be an irrelevancy. Where, you know, yeah. There's no difference between right. a black man and a white man other than skin color. Right. Um, so these exceptions make sense. Um, what are some of the other complexities that you see having been sort of added sure. uh, by the department over the years?
2: Yeah. I mean, the biggest um uh, uh difference, uh, and this really goes to a big part of Title IX, is athletics, which you mentioned. So we we expect to have uh separate male and female teams to do otherwise would be you know really unfair to women. Um, we don't allow separate man, black and white teams. If the basketball team is almost predominantly black, there's no cause for, for for whites to say, "Hey, we weren't treated fairly." The truth is, they just weren't as good. Um, so that the biggest uh, disjuncture between the race and the sex um, in the analogy comes with with the fact that we allow separate but equal in in athletics. Um, And I use that term advisedly, separate but equal, because it shows how different it is from race. And then the question comes, what is equal? Equal number of opportunities, equal number of players, how do you measure equality? Um, And we had to find some way of measuring that. And I will say that the way we, we devised for measuring that, which is making sure we had equal numbers of male and female varsity athletes i think was a very bad mistake because it overlooks the fact that males and females might have different interests and it overlooks i mean the fact that um education and intercollegiate sports are not allied they are usually in strong opposition it's been a really bad event uh development for the education of women
1: yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we we do have this debate a lot at IWF because, um, you know, IWF took a strong position in the early years against the cutting of male teams to create female teams um, to comply with Title IX. And of course, I think everybody agrees that, um, you know, you shouldn't ask one group to step aside to make room for another. I think mm-hmm. most people agree that that was not good. Um in my personal view, I you know I think the colleges are at fault because they didn't want to increase the share of the athletic pie. Now, you might not okay. think that they should increase the share yeah. of the athletic pie. Yeah. I, I personally thought think that the best way for them to have complied with the athletic regulations of Title IX would have been to add women's teams without cutting the men's mm-hmm. team. Um, the interest and ability discussion is sort of it's interesting to me um sports are at universities are unlike anything else um Mm -hmm. when you're talking about division one athletes division one athletes are recruited for Mm -hmm. so it's not really about the interest and ability of the student body that you just happen to have or that Mm -hmm. you admitted Um, you will have the interest and ability that you recruit for and and so um the interest in ability test doesn't really work when you're talking about recruited division one athletes. Um,
2: yeah, I agree with you. Uh, that, and this was the basis of a, an important suit in the first circuit called Brown versus Cohen. Um, I, uh, and, and what the, what the title nine regulations have really done is say that even if you want to preserve your male teams, then you've got to do a lot more recruiting of female athletes in order to get the number of uh, varsity athletes and number of teams, which means I mean this is the point I I probably do disagree with you a bit here I think which is which means that you have to spend more money on sports you have to spend more the most precious thing that elite colleges have which is admission slots on athletes um, and then, which means that there are other Females uh, might be good mathematicians or political scientists or cello players who don't get admitted because there is a certain, a real limit on how many slots there are.
1: Um, in the interest of full disclosure, and I feel like as, as a lawyer, we're, lawyers were constantly doing this on this show, but in the interest of full disclosure, I have two daughters who um, one currently plays field hockey in college. The other did. They were both recruited athletes. And um, there may very well have been girls who were better mathematicians than they are, but they were excellent students and highly qualified for their university. I'm well. sure.
2: I, I, in full disclosure, I'll say that um, my daughter um, was a lacrosse player, wasn't recruited, but she loved playing JV lacrosse um, at Ivy League school. And I'm a, I'm a very strong believer in athletic opportunities for women. And the other, I just will mention one other thing about the way in which the the focus was on colleges and varsities. I think the biggest problem in inequality has been at the high school level. Um, and only very recently has OCR paid any attention to, to high schools, where often the, the difference between the opportunities for men and for boys and girls is really quite profound. And that's when you want to get uh girls interested in athletics and uh, getting involved in uh, staying in better physical shape it's a re- and there are b- very big racial differences in the opportunities are given to uh to girls in high school as well
0: um can we can we take a step back here before sure. we get too deep in the weeds in terms of of athletics sure um and could you give us an overview of how we are taught how we got in the yeah. first place from this one sentence to mm-hmm balancing male and female teams right um what is the regulatory mechanism what's ocr right i just i want to give background um on uh, for folks who don't uh who may not understand how like the administrative state actually works in this way so all these things that we were talking about whether it's athletics we'll get to you know due process and sexual misconduct we'll get to free speech right and we'll get to the question of the definition of sex none of this is taking place with on the statutory level like none of this stuff We just showed you what Congress passed, that one sentence. Mm -hmm. So could you explain for folks a little bit, you know, how we ended up with all these layers of policy spun out of that single sentence?
2: Sure. Um, When Congress passed the law in 1972, the term sexual harassment was not being used. It was really kind of invented um, a few years later by feminist um, activists and scholars. So they weren't thinking about sexual harassment. The idea that in 1972 Congress had any idea that this would involve transgender issues—you know, no one had any idea. So how did this all evolve? Um, And I describe it as a term I call institutional leapfrogging, which is that uh, the agency takes a small step, and then the courts would take another step, and then the agencies would go one step beyond that, uh, and so on, and so uh, so that you ended up with. a set of, of guidelines that um, really had no one had planned for, and Congress had very had no input into. Um, and I don't think that anyone in the process could had any idea where this was going. That's most evident in the sexual. So, harassment so to
1: take an example of, of what you um, mean when you say uh, institutional leapfrogging. Sure. So Title Nine prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. Mm-hmm. And then, and so does title seven, right? Mm-hmm. It prohibits employment yeah. discrimination on the basis right. of sex. So different cases go up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court says that in some circumstances, sexual harassment can be a form of sex discrimination when it alters the conditions of a person's employment. Mm-hmm. So then Uh, By leapfrogging, you mean that then the agency comes and says, okay, well, the court said this about employment law. We're going to add to that and say it about Title IX. And then the the court comes back and goes one step further than that, and the agency goes further, and they keep hopping over each other in terms of substantive applications of the law. Exactly. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Congress is back at the starting line,
0: but-
2: Right, exactly. And one of the features there, as you noted, was that all the sexual harassment stuff all started in the employment context. Um, And then when uh, the Supreme Court um, uh, said that uh, schools could be liable for sexual harassment by teachers against students, then the school said, we need guidance. So what did OCR do? They said, well, let's just import all of these rules from Title VII. Despite the fact, and here the analogy problem comes, that schools aren't always like employment. You know, you're know, you dealing with kids, number one. Um, when you're dealing with colleges, you're people living in dorms. So we took the, we took the employment rules and applied them to schools without thinking about how they were different. Um, so that's what the agency did in the 1990s. Um, and then one of the interesting things about Title IX was then the Supreme Court finally heard this, these issues. And before it had only been the lower courts. The Supreme Court took, I thought, a fairly reasonable reading of the statute and said it has to be extreme misconduct. And the school it has to be aware of it. And they have to, they, they have to take reasonable measures to deal with it. But then OCR, the Office of... Actually,
1: not just aware of it. Justice O'Connor's opinion in Davis very clearly said that their actions or inactions have to be so extreme that the sexual harassment, the sexual discrimination is actually being conducted by the school. So in other words, if a student routinely complains uh, that she's being harassed by a teacher or another student and the school repeatedly does nothing then you could argue that continued harassment mm-hmm. uh, is is in fact their policy because they're yeah. allowing it to occur, right? right? They, so she did not – she, Justice O'Connor, and the court never said, um, you know, a simple failure to discipline somebody for bad behavior could make somebody liable for millions of dollars in damages.
2: Absolutely. And she said that you have to have actual knowledge, the, the school has to have actual knowledge and act with deliberate indifference or very high standard. Then um, on the last day uh, or one of the last days of the Clinton administration, OCR said, we're not going to follow that. We're going to that applies only to liability law. We have another set of rules um, and we will will follow the previous rules, which really then laid the, the foundation for the Obama administration's rules that really expanded that dramatically. So in this case, you really do have this big dispute between the Supreme Court's interpretation um, and uh, and OCR's interpretation. And I, I, I mention this because the, the Trump administration regulations in 2020 stayed much, much closer to the Supreme Court's interpretation. And for that reason, I think the, the Biden administration is going to have a tough time getting any huge changes through judicial review because the, the great advantage the trump administration had is number one they went through the whole process and not just through dear colleague letters. Um, right. And, and second yeah I just like the, that they stay close to the Supreme Court. So, that so,
1: process a little bit of dear sure. colleague letters versus rulemaking. And yeah what power does the department actually have over schools right. to enforce these these interpretations of law that have not been authorized by Congress and in some cases are even by the Supreme Court.
2: Yeah, this is one of these kind of seemingly boring matters that is really important. Um, So the the statute gives the Office for Civil Rights the the opportunity to issue rules and regulations to interpret and enforce the statute. Um, uh, That is what Uh, the agency did in 1975, went through the administrative procedures, notice and comment rulemaking process, proposing a rule, getting comments, um, and then issuing a final regulation in in the Federal Register. But they didn't do so again in a major regulation until 2020. So all of that time, they issued guidelines, they issued these things called dear colleague letters, acting as though the head of the Office for Civil Rights is my colleague as a teacher. Um, right. And mo- most of us do not consider uh, Catherine Lehman our colleague, <laughs> uh, but she <laughs> clearly does. Um, so there was no process, there's no public participation. Um, and the other thing that diverted from the statute was there, there was basically no effort to terminate federal funding for noncompliance. Um, we as teachers are told all the time, oh, if you do that, they'll take away our federal funding. Nonsense. They never do because it's too politically extreme. The total number of terminations of federal funding under Title IX since 1972 is zero. It's uh, How do they enforce it? They enforce it by we'll having sure private it. parties bring <laughs> suit in federal court. Um and then the extent to which the courts then will accept these, dear colleague, letters and these guidance, then it can be enforced through injunction or through monetary damages.
1: Well, and also, don't they they investigate?
2: Yes. So that's the other thing that. So for uh, under for uh, athletics, the this uh, suit for damages and injunction was was heavily used but when you have this disjuncture between what supreme court saying and what ocr is saying then that that is really foreclosed so they came up with this investigation strategy says we will announce uh publicly damaging reputation damaging um investigations these investigations will go on for months and often years they will be extremely expensive We will build alliances with Title IX offices within these universities, and we'll basically beat the university into submission until it signs a consent decree. Um, And that's what the Obama administration did um, after uh, 2014 in university after university after university.
0: And, and they do this on the K-12 level as well, right, um, in slightly different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there's a huge school discipline issue that mm-hmm. was essentially the result of a Dear Colleague letter from the Obama administration. Um, they're right at the end of the Obama administration. They put out another Dear Colleague letter that actually did, you know, ask public schools uh, to, quote unquote, accommodate gender identity, meaning assign kids to locker rooms on the basis mm-hmm. of their gender identity or proclaim mm-hmm. gender identity. So oh, I think Dear Colleague letters can have really sweeping changes. Yeah. And
1: I I sort of disagree with your characterization of that, Inez, because if all they were doing was asking them to accommodate transgender students, then a single person bathroom would have been sufficient. That would have been a reasonable. There was the one
0: case where they they pushed back against the school even for creating like a a single stall restroom for this kid to change in. Um, But that's how they they characterized it.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I'll just say on the the transgender thing, I mean, that was a a classic case of. Of leapfrogging because um, the the agency didn't do it uh, had a case uh, complaint before it it was involved Gavin Grimm in in uh, Virginia um, and they uh, the transgender activists got a, a minor official in the Office for Civil Rights to issue a, ra- a, a letter. Not a regulation, a letter, basically saying that we think that, ga- that Gavin Grimm um, was being discriminated against. The court then relied upon that, and then OCR in issuing this dear colleague letter, then relied on the court decision, and now court decisions have relied on the dear colleague letter, and it's really a uh, 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 you know a game of telephone.
1: Right. So on that note, I think we should bring in Candace Jackson, who was one of these bureaucrats at OCR, although not necessarily one of the evil, nefarious ones. One trying
0: to trying to actually bring the interpretation of Title IX, something closer to both what Congress and the courts had, uh, uh, you know, sort of laid out. Um, yeah. We we did our we did our best to uh, uh, at least
3: if we were going to send out some kind of guidance or letter we, we at least tried to reframe it as dear
0: educator, <laughs>
1: not right. that not your colleague,
0: uh, oh I mean colleague um so candace jackson is a lawyer and former deputy general counsel at the department of education um as as we said in the intro here she she did um she was one of these folks in ocr uh who who was uh dealing with these regulations and candace if the first thing you could do for us um could you lay out the changes um that uh the the devos department actually issued and and as um as the professor said, right, actually went through old school APA notice and comment rulemaking on, which is why it's, it's taken this long for the Biden administration to try to unwind it.
3: Yep, that's exactly right. And um, Professor Melnick's um, history of Title IX lays, lays a perfect groundwork for that. And so you can tell that for about two decades, once sexual harassment had started being a sex discrimination thing in the courts, and, and the Department of Education caught on to that, never bothered to regulate about it, though. Mm. Congress never bothered to add to the Title IX legislation to address sexual harassment. And the Department of Education never, never bothered to issue legally binding regulations. So for about 20 years, it was this political football of guidance documents. And each administration could come in and tinker with the, the guidance documents. And, um, but overall, the, um, the, the approach of that guidance from OCR for 20 years stayed um, relatively consistent, uh, in terms of having just imported from title seven, like, like, uh, professor Melnick was saying, not giving in my view, a lot of thought to not only what the Supreme court was saying in the late nineties about, uh, what title nine means for sexual harassment in, uh, in schools and how that is different from the workplace context. Um, And also not not caring that we are we were importing a a huge paradigm, an important, significant paradigm of a new realm that we expected schools to act under. And yet we left them in a gray zone legally as to what is truly required, what is concretely enforceable uh, as a regulation or a statutory obligation versus Dear colleague, we think you should do this. And it's it's a gray area that really was unfair to schools on something this significant. So by the middle of the Obama administration, they issued um, new guidance documents that, that really ramped all of this up in terms of Title IX, because it changed the framework, again, through guidance only. But it really did change the framework to very openly become motivated by... Um, being pro-survivor, I don't know how else to put it. That that is that was the goal. It was it was a it was guidance to schools driven by, you know, we we think that sexual harassment and assault in schools is still being swept under the rug too much. Survivors are not getting justice. Um, they need to be able to rely on their schools. And so what was what was laid out at that point, uh, without any public input or or uh, process to it, uh, ended up with a lot of very, very one-sided things, when these situations, uh, when you think about it, until, uh, until like Jennifer said, you, unless you're in a situation where a school is being so deliberately indifferent to a horrible situation that you can really say the school itself is, is subjecting a student to sexual harassment and assault. Uh, but in most of these situations, you're not talking about this is school policy. You know, no school policy did or does say, you know, we support sexual assault. It was a matter of are there two individual independent people in the school's community? And what happened between these two people? What actually happened? Was there harassment? Was there assault? Um, it's a factual question. And so schools were, are, are in a position of having to be of neutral in in at least seeking to discover factually what did happen does it constitute sex discrimination because it it is interfering significantly on the basis of sex with somebody's opportunity to access their education and then separately what do we do if if someone is found responsible of that kind of violation then then what do we do to discipline that student or employee um but all of that was um done under a different framework under the Obama administration, where schools were told via guidance to set up a a very, uh, a very short circuit system of any, any kind of recognizable due process. So it made it very, very easy for schools to go from accusation to um, punishment. Mm -hmm. And that in my view um, has never, ever served victims or perpetrators well, because It it, it, this is a serious thing, and this is something that the consequences of getting it wrong are so high on both sides. You do not want innocent um, people uh, to have their lives ruined by the accusation and losing their education. And you do not want people who have been victimized um, to to fail to get institutional support and whatever kind of administrative justice uh, can be had through that. By the way, it's important also to realize, because, again, with the pile on and the leapfrogging, it's easy to forget that uh, Title IX is is sort of one of three avenues for dealing with um, severe sexual harassment or sexual assault, criminal acts, especially on on campuses. Um, Victims always have an option to privately go into civil court directly against The perpetrator uh, and have the right to pursue criminal channels too so what we're asking schools to do is happening potentially alongside one or even two other separate legal processes so you really have to be thoughtful i think about what what kind of system makes sense for the school environment both in the in a k through 12 setting and at a college setting with young adults But you have to try to set up rules for how a school is supposed to one find out about a sexual misconduct incident or allegation of one and then second what exactly is a school supposed to do what actions must they take the supreme court was not helpful in that regard all it said was you know don't be deliberately indifferent well what does that mean launch an immediate investigation um you know kick somebody out i mean there was very little guidance in that regard and then three um how is the school supposed to um procedurally uh deal with uh determining what happened between two people um and
1: it's, it's always seemed to me i mean sexual assault is a crime and it's it seems to me that uh you know decades ago the pendulum has swung from one extreme to the other decades ago people who were assaulted were just brushed off when they went to school yep. administrators about it and they didn't do anything. Yep. Um, now it's gone in the other direction, but it seems to me that really colleges and universities shouldn't be in the business of determining the facts of, of an alleged crime. And yep. you know why isn't there sort of a bright line rule where if a student comes to an administrator and says, I've been sexually assaulted, the administrator provides supportive services, uh, helps the person report that crime to the police and, let, and then lets the police investigate. And I, I sort of think there should be a bright line. That if somebody is arrested for a crime of sexual assault, they're out. The, you know, if, if they're found not guilty, they can come back. But if you're arrested, if the police think that there's probable cause to arrest you for sexual assault, Bye bye until it's resolved. I'm fine with that, but why why are we letting the the university make those factual determinations?
3: Oh, Jennifer, there are so many reasons for it. Um, and trust me, when we first started um, in, in you know early 2017 looking at this issue, absolutely it was on the table conceptually to stand back and take a look at what are we doing here? Is, is it are we should we go down the path of Let's get specific about what schools need to do, or should we go down a whole different fork in the road and say, "Eh, this is not school's responsibility." And I'll tell you the and the reason we we went down the the former instead of the latter is because as an agency, as an executive branch agency, we are kind of stuck with what what our authorizing statute plus I've you know Supreme Court interpretation of has to say. And and sexual harassment, including sexual assault, can be a form of sex discrimination. So we're a little bit locked in that way. Congress could modify Title IX and do a lot more nuance and a lot more setting up a better overall system for the entire problem of this. Title IX, as written, was never intended to be an anti-sexual assault law, Correct. right? And so there is definitely a mismatch going on that we're now kind of stuck doing the best we can with a, as an agency. Um, so, you know, can I,
2: say, can I, I mean, there are various types of sexual uh, of misconduct that, that are not criminal. So if I yes. as a teacher um, in, basically told female students um, that they had to sleep with me to get an A, um, then that's fairly serious misconduct and I should be disciplined by the school. Um, the, the other you know,
3: tricky thing the, these days is that, um, you know, there, there was a real trend um, starting around 2011, probably picked up a lot around 2014, but a real trend on campuses to redefine by expansion uh, what consent means in, in, yes. the, in the context of right. sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And that change did not happen in parallel with criminal law. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so what a school policy deems sexual assault, including rape and any of the other um, forcible or non-forcible sexual offenses like that um, could very well be different and not qualify uh, under that state's criminal law. Um, and and I, it, for those who don't know, the, the difference is uh, on how to define consent uh, basically comes down to do you judge consent under kind of a standard of no means no or do you judge consent under a standard that's more what we call affirmative consent where if you don't get a a very obvious verb you know verbal yes you, you you're, you're stuck in a, a well, world. I mean,
1: some of them are even worse. They, I think I, I forget, but it was an Ivy League school that had a policy that said if you had felt emotionally manipulated into sleeping mm-hmm. with somebody that you had been assaulted. I'm like, um, hello, yeah. every man tries to emotionally <laughs> manipulate <laughs> women into sleeping with them. It's called seduction. Yeah. This is how yeah, we'll it works. Just-
2: uh, Candace made an interesting point where I just wanted to build on it. She said that there was a paradigm shift in the 2011-2014 um, guidance. And I think that's quite true. And the shift was from seeing this as sexual uh, harassment, as a type of individual misconduct that's conducted by a few bad apples, and we should punish those people and get rid of them. And I think yes. most people would say that's definitely true. To the the problem that the, the purpose of the regulations and the guidance is to change campus culture, to change the culture, which means, you know, I have to, you have to change the way people think about sex, sexual relations. You have to change people's understanding of what consent is, what power is. So that, that paradigm shift was really profound in the Obama administration.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and in the 2020 regulations, um, we, we did return, um, in significant ways back to an in, a more individual paradigm on the theory that each and every individual in these terrible situations matters. Each mm-hmm. person involved on both sides of these things, um, you need to get it right. And so this wasn't about using an allegation that er- that arises out of a particular incident to make a point about the systemic nature of this or that problem mm-hmm. that's not fair to the individuals involved in each awful situation. Mm-hmm. So we did focus on creating a system where each individual complainant, meaning anybody who is reported to have um, even allegedly suffered um, serious verbal harassment or any kind of sexual assault uh, on campus, um, immediately the school is supposed to reach out to that person and offer educational supports. We call mm-hmm. them supportive measures, things a school can do to try to uh, deter sexual harassment, protect everyone's safety, um, and, and, and hopefully help uh, a complainant's education stay on track. Then we gave autonomy to the complainant, the alleged victim, to have a lot of choice over whether to then file a formal complaint that at, that demands that the school factually investigate and potentially punish. The, t- the school's Title IX coordinator has the authority to basically override and do it anyway, and we felt that was necessary as a stopgap to the way that, especially when it's um, professor-student or mm-hmm. teacher-student or so forth, a lot of times students do not feel comfortable filing their own formal complaint. Um, so the school through the Title IX coordinator can do that, um, but a lot of uh, au- the autonomy is returned to the individual um, uh, alleged victim, and that is one of that that is one of the the powerful things that can help heal is giving that kind of control back in that way. Mm-hmm. Then what we did with the regulations is say, okay, if the school through through the Title IX coordinator or the victim, um, and if the victim's a minor, by the way, it can be all through the parents. Chooses to file a formal complaint, then then we set out exactly what a school has to do. Then mm-hmm. they have to conduct a neutral, impartial investigation. They have to uh, use an investigator who has training on on Title IX and about and, and training on how to remain impartial in these situations. Um, that investigator has to collect evidence and then show that evidence um, during the investigation mm-hmm. to both parties, each of whom has the right to. An advisor of their choice to accompany them throughout this process. Um, and each, each side gets to weigh in on that evidence, uh, propose witnesses and, and evidence and so forth. Um, and then at the end of the investigation process, both, uh, both sides and their advisors uh, have the opportunity to uh, submit questions to the other party. At the K through 12 level, that just has to be done uh, through written questions. But at the college level, um, there's going to be a hearing where um, through the the party's advisors, you you pose questions that maybe um, test the the plausibility of either the accusation or the denial. I'm a big Mm -hmm. proponent of cross-examination and truth-seeking like that in a factual way, being of equal compelling
0: benefit to both sides in these situations. Um, so a lot of people are familiar, um, with how some of these, and I will call them what they were prior to, um, the, the regulations advanced by the Trump administration, these, these kangaroo court mm. sort yeah. of trials. Um, uh, I think most people became aware of how this works when Kavanaugh was accused, even though it, it wow. wasn't a totally different situation. It was politics. It was, it was, um, his, you know, sort of court was both the po- court of public opinion and then, um, the, the Senate. Right. Um, but I, I I think one of the the most persistent, um, frankly, lies that I've seen about the regulations that you put out was that, oh, like, Um, The Trump administration is making it so that if if you're a victim and you file a complaint, your um, actual the person you're you're accusing of sexual misconduct actually is going to cross examine you um, personally. And and I think that was one of those. It's very much more like what happened in even in the, the Senate quote unquote trial for Kavanaugh, where the GOP had a lawyer come in and say, "Okay, well, where were you on? Friday at 8, okay, and then who did you talk to after that? Okay. And then, you know, did are there any other witnesses? Did you say something to anyone? Did you come home? Like, very basic fact-finding yeah. missions, yeah. as you say, it's so critical um, to being able to figure out in some of these very ambiguous, he said, she said, yeah. situations, um, that that tool is really essential to, to giving any modicum of due process. Um, I did want to ask you before, uh, since we are running out of time here a little bit, I wanted to make sure to ask you, Candace, about the harassment part of your um, regulations. Right. So and we touched on it a little bit in the beginning of the program um, that actually there's this whole free speech component as yeah. well um, to the way that schools were trying to implement Title IX and the way that um, previous administrations through Dear Colleague Letters had encouraged them to do that, um, that really broadened the definition of harassment uh, to a point where it could really scoop in some protected speech. So, um, if you would both maybe address that before uh, we come to a close here. Sure. Yeah.
3: Um, that that's a huge. That that's been a huge issue and something that I think we reached the right balance uh, with in the 2020 regulations. And that is realizing that non-physical um, harassment uh, based on sex. You're, you're talking about speech. You're talking about verbal, maybe graphic, or you know but you're, you're, you're talking about expressing words or, or something of that nature, it is going to implicate speech. Students do not discard their First Amendment rights, uh, nor do teachers or professors, uh, when they walk through the schoolhouse gates, right? And so if you allow harassment to become so broadly defined the way it was under the Obama administration, literally so subjective, um, anything, uh, it, anything that is uh, subjectively unwelcome uh, when you apply that to the realm of speech, uh, all of a sudden you're you're uh, you're you're in a zone of shutting down and deterring and punishing an awful lot of um, an awful lot of uh, expression of opinion. Uh, when you're talking about younger kids, there's banter and inter- social interactions that kids are kind of fumbling through. Um, when you're talking about
1: high school was unwelcome speech to (laughs) me, you really want to get down to it. You
3: have to allow some room for, for that in the educational environment in a way that you don't necessarily have to in a workplace. I I am totally cool with banning, you know, sex related talk in a workplace. No problem. Um, school has a different, um, a, a different context when you get to college level, it's actually critical that people be able to, um, talk and write and speak. Uh, freely um, uh, about issues that are going to be subjectively offensive and unwelcome to a listener.
1: Uh, I
2: like um, that one of the features of the Obama guidelines was they kept referring to verbal conduct, which is speech. Um, and the fact that they kind of equated uh, speech with action was part of the problem. And they said it doesn't have this, this um, misconduct through speech doesn't have to be aimed at anyone in particular. It can be political speech, and if you want to see examples of this, Laura Kipnis at Northwestern I was, just um, was harassed by writing um, an article, engaged allegedly in harassment by writing an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education, um, and so political speech was. Could subject you to investigation um she's just written another article in the chronicle of higher education i really recommend you read about um the danger all this creates within academia
3: yeah so what we did is try to fix that by dividing up the definition of what kind of misconduct or what kind of conduct can qualify as sexual harassment broke it up into the quid pro quo you know teacher student stuff the sexual assault which includes Dating violence, domestic violence, stalking, and then that middle category, we put the same standards into that category that the Supreme Court laid out Mm -hmm. in in the late 90s for school sexual harassment. And that is, you're talking about, uh, let's say, verbal, uh, unwelcome conduct on the basis of sex that is so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that you can conclude it is really denying someone equal access to education. If that's the standard, that is a, I, that is a that is about right to yeah. um, filter out what wh- where the bounds of free speech, even in an educational environment, are going to kick in.
0: So just to illustrate, I mean, um, what the the Davis v. Monroe standard or um, I think what people were thinking about when they thought about sexual harassment in the context of becoming so ongoing, severe, pervasive um, and objectively offensive was, you know, the school not stopping, for example, someone from following a female student around like a man following a female student around and, you know, Calling her the c word repeatedly, like walking around behind her as she was trying to go to classes, and the school didn't do anything about it. Right, that mm-hmm. that might raise the level that you're talking about. But as um, Professor Melnick just mentioned, I mean that that has I mean that has completely. Uh, first of all, it's unimaginable that in today's context, a school would tolerate that. Um, but. You know, now we're talking about an article in in um, in a journal that that is generally addressing topics of uh, of sex, of gender, of of, you know, all of these debates that Jennifer and I are always having on this show. Um, A lot of that speech could be subjectively offensive. So much of the conversation um, that is is worth having is subjectively offensive to someone. So it, it really has expanded far far beyond um, what people would typically think of as sexual harassment. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'll if- give you an
2: example of um, how this happens on college campuses these days. I wrote an editorial in the school newspaper about freedom of speech and why it was threatened on college campuses. Some of the st- one student group said my entire article was a microaggression. Oh. Um, which I guess meant that it should have been canceled and censored. That's why we're where we're at at college. Campus. Well,
3: and and um, you know, those of us who are actively engaged in the the um, sex versus gender identity um, issues right now have to be very aware that when the Biden administration is proposing right now to amend these Title IX regulations to make on the basis of sex discrimination include gender identity when it comes to free speech. That's a huge concern because we are in the middle of a uh, significant and crucial uh, public and social debate and discussion over these issues right now. And in my view, if you allow that that change to be funneled through Title IX, you're going to shut down that debate. Um, via sexual harassment of all things. You you Mm. actually deemed a sexual harasser and get expelled on that ground for talking Mm. about and voicing a perspective that says, I don't believe gender identity is objective enough to override sex-based classifications when it comes to sports or anything else. You express that, now you're offending somebody on the basis of gender identity. You're the discriminator, you're the harasser. It's, it's, It's not good.
1: Right. So it's basically the confluence of two things, the expansion of the definition of of sexual harassment and what counts as something um, so offensive that it 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 impairs the educational experience. Um, It's the combination of that expansion with a new expansion, which is uh, expanding the legal definition of the word sex to encompass gender identity. And when you put those two expansions together. Um, it's really, really dangerous for free expression. There are already universities that have, as part of their Title IX policies, um, you know, saying that misgendering somebody, using the wrong pronoun repeatedly, is a form of harassment. Right. Um, whether or not it's a mistake or, or deliberate, it can be counted as sexual harassment um, by some universities. And the Biden administration. Is about to codify that, um, or re- you know, by regulation. Um, I do want to talk about the forthcoming regulations. We don't know exactly when they're going to drop, but our understanding is that they will both repeal um, the DeVos due process regulations, which were so important, um, and usher in new substantive rights that are not. Um, were not anything Congress thought about in 1972 when they passed the law. Preview that for us a little bit, um, and kind of survey the different buckets of things that we think they're going to do, Candace.
3: Yes, this um, w- what what the Biden administration has said so far is um, is is exactly that they they want to um, roll back uh, the due process protections that are built in. Um, I... They want they want to re-expand the definition of what counts as, as actionable sexual harassment And then third, they want to add in um, the concept of gender identity discrimination as being the equivalent of on the basis of sex. Um, they've already issued guidance. They did this last summer that um, a fact sheet that they issued uh, Ed issued jointly with the Department of Justice that uh, gave some helpful illustrations of the way that the departments are already, reinterpreting Title IX. This is before they have bothered to go through regulations. They're already reinterpreting Title IX to, uh, to to label it gender identity discrimination to require somebody to adhere to um, um, a, a single sex designation. Um, it's one thing to say, don't discriminate based on whatever characteristic you want in terms of don't kick somebody out of school just for having that thing. Mm-hmm. Don't tell that person that they're excluded from extracurricular activities or, you know, don't that that's punitive based on some characteristic. Okay. That would be one thing, but they're, they're stretching now the concept of discrimination to, to, to really invert it and stretch it so far. It's meaningless in in the sense that it is, it's considered illegal. Discrimination not to honor someone's belief, someone's right. inner sense of themselves. That That's not something we've ever done in, in law before, and there should be huge red flags and problems about that.
1: So we've expanded the definition of harassment. We've expanded the definition of the term sex. <laughs> now we're expanding the definition of the word discrimination. Okay. Um, let's just blow the whole thing up. <laughs> So yep. well,
2: I will say that I, I think the Biden administration is going to have a tough time coming up with regulations that will survive judicial review to make wholesale changes in the 2020 regulations. Because I think, um, number one, the courts are concerned about due process. Uh, yeah. Many, many courts and, and schools have lost a lot of suits. Number two, they stuck so close to the Supreme Court. Um, so I think you know, if they make some minor adjustments, that will get through major adjustments, I don't think. So I think the real battle is going to be on the transgender issue and not so much on the sexual harassment.
3: I think in the um, in the
0: middle run, you know, over the next mm-hmm.
3: five years, I think that's right.
0: Um, all right. Well, I, I think we're running out of time here, unfortunately, although there's so much to talk about it. But this one sentence just to, you know, loop <laughs> it all back together. Right. Um, we've talked about sexual harassment. We've talked about free speech. We've talked about gender identity. We've talked about sports, um, you know, and we, we've talked about due process. And all of this has been spun by the regulatory state out of this single sentence uh, in Title IX. Um, but Candace, Candace uh, Jackson, right? Sorry. <laughs> I, I just remember you as Candace. Um, Candace Jackson, thank you so much for for joining us on At the Bar. Um, Professor Shep Melnick from um, Boston College, thank you so much also for joining us um, at the bar uh, and we're just going to um, Jennifer and I are going to wrap up uh, just the two of us wrap up this. So um, we'll excuse both of you from, from this class at, at the bar, but thank you so much for joining us, for enlightening us um, on this. And, and definitely Jennifer, do you want to read out the professor's book again?
1: Oh um, yeah. It's uh, it's the transformation it's of title nine and it's available from, or it's published by Brookings. Highly, Highly.
0: recommend by the way.
2: Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the ad.
0: So thank you both for joining us. Thanks. Um, and just just uh, to chat up with Jennifer at the end here, uh, I, I wanted to point out that actually uh, here at IW um, in IWV we've released again. And we mentioned it last time the Women's Bill of Rights, which. Because we've been talking about all of this like very important, um, these very important policy changes that are happening through the regulatory state, none of this is happening via legislation. And I I think my favorite part of our Women's Bill of Rights is that it actually um, encourages legislators, whether at the congressional level, the federal level or um, at the um, at the state level to actually go ahead and define sex. Um, To make sure that especially that gender identity piece of this battle actually does have to happen in the court of public opinion through elected officials where, you know, we as citizens get to weigh in and discuss it and not sort of through a dear colleague letter um, that gets thrown out there by by an administration that ends up changing the entire landscape and yet not giving people any opportunity to really weigh in the, the way that they would in the traditional political process. So Jennifer, I don't know if you wanna to, to um, talk a little bit about our Women's Bill of Rights and how, how that prevents uh, this, this sort of, of um, regulation from happening.
1: Well, Women's Bill of Rights would just codify certain words, um, words like sex, woman, female, um, so that they can't be twisted to mean something other than what they commonly meant Um, at the time that they were put into certain statutes. Um, So it doesn't prevent legislators from passing new civil rights protections for different groups. Um, It simply forces them not to do that through the back door by twisting pre-existing statutes. Um, And as you said, it forces the discussion into the public um, and so that it's not behind closed doors because – I think that when it's behind closed doors, I mean it's bad for democracy. But uh, you know, it's just it's it's hurtful. It's hurtful to the culture generally when we twist words like this, right? Words have to have meaning, and so um, we have to have a common understanding in this country of what, on the basis of sex, means. We have to have a common understanding of what things like sexual harassment means. Uh, we don't get into that in the Women's Bill of Rights, but again you know, a common public understanding of certain terms is critical for the rule of law. If if we can't agree on what the words in our laws mean, the words cease to have any meaning at all. And that's really, I think, scary.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. There's this sort of Orwellian tinge to the entire conversation to be had around Title IX. Um, and I have to keep reminding myself that it's just, and that's why I brought it up like three or four times during the last hour has been, this is just one sentence that bans sex discrimination. Um, all of this stuff that we've been talking about, all of these policy buckets, they come back down to one sentence that Congress passed in a time where there is no way that they ever would have considered the implications for gender identity, right? Um, and, and so I think it's really important to keep bringing it back. Now, this Title IX discussion is going to be ongoing. I think we're actually going to continue this discussion probably in our next at the bar in two weeks um, because there there are so many different buckets and, and we have a special guest as well um, who, who we hope will be coming on. I, will, I won't share that right now, but um, we'll have a special guest coming on to discuss uh, both the, the regulations that um, Candace discuss- uh, mentioned and, and elaborated on for us that the. the Regulations promulgated by the Trump um, Department of Education um, and, and then the current uh, speculation about when. So nobody really knows when these regulations, these new regulations from the Biden administration are going to come out. They previewed them uh, by looking to The Washington Post. Um, so we know some of the contours of what they're thinking about, but there's still a very open question, um, what the response will be from the public, um, what the notice and comment period is and I want to really encourage people when that does come out, you know, um, really consider writing, writing a comment because there is a public um, sort of notification and comment period uh, where your voice actually is very important. And it's not just a foregone conclusion, because at bare minimum, if all of you guys write in about all of these issues, somebody in the department is going to have to spend their time <laughs> to go over each and every concern and substantively address it, or the regulations can be struck down by court. So it is really like a a, a very important way to make your voice heard. So I want to encourage everyone in advance that when they do drop these really damaging uh, regulations that really are going to transform this single sentence into a behemoth of, frankly, you know, lies and policies that are not supported, I think, by the majority of Americans, this is your opportunity to have um, your voice chart It's not quite as good as voting for someone in Congress, which is how it's supposed to work, but it's at least better than a dear colleague letter. So
1: yeah. Um, and I would argue um, to push back against it now where you can, because the reality is uh, these regulations haven't dropped yet. They don't, they have the force of law. Um, They're just, they've just been previewed to the press. And, you know, if you, here a teacher, an administrator, a member of the media suggests that certain policies are required by Title IX, push back because Title IX requires that there be no sex discrimination. Title IX does not require any number of things that people are claiming uh, it requires now um, and that the current administration is, is suggesting that it requires. So um, until the regulations drop and, and they have any legal force whatsoever, don't let, you know, people suggest that this is the law. It's not.
0: That's that's a really good point to close out on, Jennifer. Um And just for for everybody's edification, if you haven't watched At The Bar before, it's a production of the Independent Women's Forum. It's also available for viewing on Facebook, YouTube, and IWF.org. Or you can listen to it in podcast form on iTunes, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. Anywhere you really get your podcasts, At The Bar is there. And Jennifer, you want to close us out with uh, the last line here?
1: Sure. We hope you'll join us in two weeks for another spirited discussion of issues at the intersection of law, politics, and culture. Until then, thanks for joining us. Cheers.